Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the banks of the River Congo in Central Africa, an English seaman stares out into the distance. He spies two bronze figures leaning on tall spears, stood in the sunlight under fantastic headdresses of spotted skins, warlike and still in statuesque repose. And from right to left, along the lighted shore, moved a wild and gorgeous apparition of a woman. She walked with measured steps, draped in striped and fringed cloths, treading the earth proudly with a slight jingle and flash of barbarous ornaments. She carried her head high, Her hair was done in the shape of a helmet. She had brass leggings to the knee, brass wire gauntlets to the elbow, a crimson spot on her tawny cheek, innumerable necklaces of glass beads on her neck. Bizarre things, charms, gifts of witchmen that hung about her, glittered and trembled at every step. She must have had the value of several elephant tusks upon her. She was savage and superb, wild-eyed and magnificent, There was something ominous and stately in her deliberate progress. And in the hush that had fallen suddenly upon the whole sorrowful land, the immense wilderness, the colossal body of the fecund and mysterious life seemed to look at her, pensive, as though it had been looking at the image of its own tenebrous and passionate soul. She came abreast of the steamer, stood still and faced us. Her long shadow fell to the water's edge, Her face had a tragic and fierce aspect of wild sorrow and of dumb pain, mingled with the fear of some struggling, half-shaped resolve. She stood looking at us without a stir, and like the wilderness itself, with an air of brooding over an inscrutable purpose. A whole minute passed, and then she made a step forward. There was a low jingle, a glint of yellow metal, a sway of fringed draperies, and she stopped, as if her heart had failed her. She looked at us all as if her life had depended upon the unswerving steadiness of her glance. Suddenly she opened her bared arms and threw them up rigid above her head, as though in an uncomfortable desire to touch the sky. And at the same time, the swift shadows darted out on the earth, swept around on the river, gathering the steamer into a shadowy embrace. A formidable silence hung over the scene. She turned away, slowly, walked on, following the bank, and passed into the bushes to the left. Only once her eyes gleamed back at us in the dusk of the thickets before she disappeared.
Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 3.12, Njinga, Rise of an African Queen. Last time, we rounded off Joan of Arc's story, covering her redemption at her nullification trial after the end of the Hundred Years' War, and her enduring legacy as a symbol of France and freedom. Today, we travel 4,000 miles south and a couple of hundred years forward to the lands that make up modern Angola to tell the story of one of Africa's greatest queens. We're out of the Middle Ages now, boo, hiss, into the era of European colonialism and expansion, slavery and subjugation. The European domination of the African continent that reached its peak in the 19th century was aided and abetted by some, resisted by many with varying degrees of success. The quote that I read at the top of the show is from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, one of the great 19th century novels on the subjects of Africa, imperialism and racism. That scene is from the final part of the book and describes a woman who symbolised Africa to Conrad. She wears the uniform and culture of her people with pride. She is powerful, martial and regal, but the colonists around her see her as savage and backward. They underestimate her, see her as inferior, but do not know that in fact it is they that represent the past, and she the future. They are the anachronism, not her. And Jinga came from a different time, from the early days of European colonisation of Africa. She fought the ancestors of those people on Conrad's Rebank for her people's continued independence, spending pretty much her entire life and reign at war. Her time on the throne was almost as long as Elizabeth I of England or Isabella of Castile, but while those two early modern queens were remembered fondly, Njinga was vilified as a savage, bloodthirsty cannibal with perverse sexual proclivities. It is only very recently her story has been re-examined fully, and Njinga reclaimed as a true anti-imperialist hero. Her story isn't pretty. She was a product of her time and culture. She was fierce, ruthless and cold. She was a fighter, and she was a survivor. And for 36 years, she defied an empire. Her ancestors would prove unable to resist the tide of colonialism. But... For a time, she did. She is a person I am sure very few of you would have heard of before. But as with the other great women of this season, I hope you stick around because it is a great story. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who contribute so much to keeping this show on the air. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And just one final note. This miniseries will contain a lot of unfamiliar words and terms native to Central Africa. Wherever possible, I will try and give a Western equivalent to them, but I'm not going to fully colonialise the story. I'm going to try and strike a delicate balance between understandability and cultural awareness. It's a tricky one to manage, and all I can say is that I will do my best. Oh, and I don't speak Portuguese, let alone any African native languages, so the pronunciations may be a little funky. Anyway, let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. 
first Europeans arrived in Central Africa in 1483, nine years before Columbus set sail aboard the Santa Maria for what he thought was India. These explorers were the Portuguese, and they arrived in the Kingdom of Congo, an entity which takes in modern Angola, southern Gabon, and most of the two modern Congos. It was a large territory, covering around 33,000 square miles, but sparsely populated, due to it being mainly arid desert. The Portuguese moved fast, establishing trading posts and converting the locals to Christianity. By 1491, the Congan king and all the chief nobles were Roman Catholics, with their children sent to Lisbon to be educated as good Europeans. The king also embarked on a cultural revolution to modernise, read, Europeanize his country. The costs of this were immediately felt. This didn't come cheap, and the Congolese engaged in wars of conquest. These wars saw captives forced into slavery, who were then either owned by the elite or sold to the Portuguese. Now that they had their foothold in Central Africa, the Portuguese moved south against the kingdom of Ndongo, which is now known as Angola. This was the second largest state in the region, about a third of the size of the Congo, and the people who lived there were known as Mabundu. At this point, Ndongo was a client state of its northern neighbour, and was divided into 17 provinces, each relatively detached from all the others. Internal communications were difficult, as the rivers were marked with vicious waterfalls and shallow areas filled with hippos and crocodiles, with the land dominated by thick forests and towering highlands. The capital, Kabasa, lay 160 miles inland and was the home of the king, or Ngola, which is where the modern country's name comes from. The kings tended to have multiple wives and concubines, and internal politics within this massive family frequently led to bloodshed. The government was, of course, run by the king, assisted by the Tendala, the equivalent of a chancellor, and the provincial governors, or Dakotas, lived in the capital as well. The king was also the commander-in-chief, and while his wives and daughters did not serve in the army, foot soldiers were made up of both men and women, and they were armed with poison-tipped spears for ranged attacks and battle-axes for hand-to-hand fighting. The king held his authority because of him being the most powerful warlord, but also his connection to the divine. This was a form of sacred kingship, where, once crowned, a king was considered to have become a demigod, invested with special divine powers over the weather and the physical environment. They were also the chief priest, and could designate anyone they wished as a subject for human sacrifice. Now I've been saying he up to this point, because before Njinga, every ruler of Ndongo had been a man. That is not to say, though, that women were powerless at court. Indeed, they wielded far more influence than their European contemporaries. They sat on the king's council, and European observers were surprised to see how prominently they figured in society and diplomacy. The country was basically made up of four kinds of people. At the top, there was the ruling elite. Then below that, there were free peasants. Then indentured serfs. And finally, of course, slaves. Slavery and slaveholding were intrinsic parts of the Mabundu economy. 
Slaves were largely war captives, but also convicted criminals who had committed particularly heinous acts of heresy, treason, or even adultery. Punishment could also be collective, with frequently a whole generation suffering the fate of one transgressor. The trade in slaves was complex and highly regulated, taking place in market squares across the country, with state-appointed agents ensuring that only the enslaved were sold. Ndongo won its independence from Congo in the 1550s, but not long after, the first Portuguese missions arrived. The first, led by priests, the next, in 1575, by soldiers. The Europeans sought to convert the people to their religion and subordinate their king to theirs. The first armed expedition was made up of less than a thousand men, but their modern weapons and artillery made them dominant on the battlefield. They also had with them Congolese and other African allies, and together they quickly conquered a lot of territory in the north of the country. In one campaign alone, the Mabundu lost over 40,000 troops. The Portuguese lost seven. We don't know how many allies died, because apparently they didn't count. This war was brutal and destructive, leaving death and famine in its wake. Those that managed to survive were often enslaved by the victors, neither sold back to their kingdoms or to traders who would transport them over to the Americas. The Mabundu fought hard and won some victories, such as the Battle of Lucala, which prevented Portugal from overrunning the whole kingdom. In the conquered territories, the people were baptised in their thousands, which was a devastating blow to the Mabundu's king authority, as so much of it derived from his position as a religious leader. If his people worshipped a different god, then a vital plank of his legitimacy was removed. Steadily, the religious structures on which local society were built were upended, replaced with the doctrine of God and the King of Portugal, who was by now King Philip of Spain, but let's not overcomplicate things. The situation was not helped by insurgent mercenary armies called the Imbangala, fierce and violent young men who were known for cannibalism, who attacked Ndongo from the south, while their Portuguese allies came from the north. By the first decade of the 17th century, the kingdom of Ndongo had significantly shrunk. But, more importantly, King Mabande at Angola could not depend on the loyalty of his nobility or his people, leading to the size of his army dwindling to almost nothing. A peace treaty had formally been agreed with Portugal, but this did not stop them from periodically raiding and annexing land, nor from them funding bands of Imbangala. They also consolidated their control over their captured territories through the construction and garrisoning of forts. Moreover, they were depleting Ndongo's manpower through the ramping up of the continental slave trade. The Portuguese were shipping between 10,000 and 13,000 slaves a year from Ndongo to Brazil to work on the sugar plantations, with their allies also selling captives into slavery themselves. The Mbundu would occasionally launch raid on the slave markets to try and stop them, which only further worsened relations between the two powers. It was into this world that Njinga Mabande was born in 1582. She was the daughter of King Cassenda of Ndongo and his favourite concubine, Kerala. According to legend, she was a breech birth, with her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. 
Given the medical practice of the time, she was lucky to survive. And traditional Mbundu belief stated that a child born in this manner would live an extraordinary life. Now, our sources for Njinga largely come from reports sent back by Portuguese governors and two biographies that were written about her shortly after her death by Antonio da Gaeta and Giovanni Antonio Gavazzi. There is also other source material from other European powers, most notably the Dutch. And while there is no doubt that they used African witnesses and people that knew her in the compilation of their works, it's important to note that, once again, we are building a portrait of a woman written by her enemies. Or, at least, not people who necessarily liked her. Well, that isn't exclusively true. There are some surviving letters written by her to European powers, governors, and even the Pope. As she grew up, it became clear that she was intellectually far beyond any of her other brothers and sisters, including her brother Mabandi, who was expected to become king one day. This, as you can imagine, caused quite a deal of resentment. Of course, this was a period of crisis for the kingdom, and Njinga was not isolated from that, having to repeatedly evacuate when Portuguese or Umbangala forces approached. She would have seen a great deal of violence and death in her young life, which undoubtedly hardened her. Her status, as her father's favourite, saw her given military and political training, normally only reserved for heirs. She attended her father's councils, judicial proceedings and courts, and was the mightiest warrior in her generation of the family. She also spoke fluent Portuguese, taught by visiting missionaries. On top of being an intelligent badass, she was also beautiful, and used this trait triple threat to elevate her own position and accumulate influence. The most remarkable way she did this was by service in the army. As I said earlier, while women did serve as soldiers, this was typically in the lower ranks, and certainly it was unusual for royal women to do so. And Jinga smashed through that glass ceiling, using her extensive training and childhood to lead armies against the Portuguese and in Mangala. She set up her headquarters in the east of the country, near the allied kingdom of Matamba. From there, she led a guerrilla campaign of raiding and harrying the invaders from a remote base, becoming every inch the military leader one would expect of a male king. It's unclear if she married at this time, but she was known for having her own harem of male concubines, along with a litany of other flings, affairs and assorted lovers. She seems to have made a point of exercising the same sexual liberties as enjoyed by her male relatives, and would stand no criticism of her actions. According to Cavazzi, when one functionary dared suggest that all of this was a bit improper, Njinga had his son murdered in front of his eyes, before executing him as well. So yeah, this was a violent time, and a violent place, where you had to be violent to survive. And Njinga was every inch a Mabundu ruler in waiting. In 1617, King Mabande Mabande Angola was assassinated by his troops following a crushing Portuguese defeat 
and was succeeded by his son and Njinga's brother, Mabandi. Ndongoli's succession is a bit like that of the Pope, in that it was a complex game of horse trading and power politics held within the court. But unlike the Holy Father, when Mabandi won this election, he had to take drastic action against all of his rivals, most notably his siblings. Unsurprisingly, given the number of wives and official concubines he had, the late king had sired a ton of children, all of whom Mabandi considered to be a threat. A bloodbath followed, with his brothers put to the sword, along with much of their families, as well as the leading officials of his father's court. He spared his sister's lives, which was generous of him, but he had Njinga's only son murdered, and according to some reports, he had all of his sisters sterilised, so that they could produce no more threats to his rule. I won't tell you the method used, but it was pretty gruesome. Now, this all sounds extremely grim, and make no mistake, it was, but it didn't mark Mabandi as being excessively cruel. In doing this, he was following an example set by many new rulers down the years, and it enabled him to secure his rule at a time when the kingdom was in chaos. Indeed, the sources do not claim that any of this was especially unusual. And Jinga, unsurprisingly less than keen to hang out with a fratricidal kinslaying brother, went to live in the Allied Kingdom of Matamba. There, she waited, biding her time, cultivating contacts within the kingdom from afar. Meanwhile, back in Ndongo, things were going from bad to worse. The Portuguese appointed a new governor of the recently created province of Angola, called Luis Mendes de Vasconcelos, in 1617, who took an even more aggressive stance against Ndongo as part of an ambitious campaign to conquer a southern African empire that would stretch from Angola in the west to Mozambique in the east and all the way south to the Cape of Good Hope. All of this would, of course, be financed by slaves taken along the way. His offensive was quick and brutal, with his troops and the Allied in Bengala marching on the Mabundu capital of Kabasa, massacring everything and everyone in its path. Once they got there, they sacked the city, with one Portuguese official describing Mbangala as, quote, capturing, eating and killing thousands of people, cutting down palm trees and destroying everything in their wake. King Mabandi put up a decent fight, but his troops were no match for the Portuguese's modern training and weapons and the ferocity of the Mbangala. In one campaign, his whole court was captured, including his principal wife, mother and sisters, with him only just escaping to the jungle. When peace was finally agreed, Mabandi had been reduced to the position of a client king, forced to pay an annual tribute of money and slaves to Portugal. In total, in Tavasconcelos' four years in Angola, he enslaved 55,000 Mabundu, shipped them to the Americas, and transferred the titles of vast swathes of land over to Portuguese settlers. Finally, they also built a fort at Mbaka, which would serve as a potential bridgehead for another invasion should Portugal feel like going in for a second time. And if they did that, King Mabandi knew that there was nothing he could do to stop them from taking his entire country, and, even more importantly for him, his crown. 
he had tried and failed to use force and also diplomacy. But he knew someone who was far more talented than he in that latter field. And that was his sister, Njinga. There was a new governor in town, Joao Correa de Souza, and this was a chance to make a fresh start. Now, I am sure the question you're all asking is this. Why on earth would Njinga want to go anywhere near her brother, who had murdered her son and tried to sterilise her? More to the point, why would Mbandi think that if he did that, he could ever trust her? Well, it's an excellent question, and not one that has an easy answer. However, I think two things can explain it. The first is that brutal as Mbandi's actions were, they were, to an extent, understandable. They were the price of power and the cost of doing business in that part of the world at the time. The other is that this was in both of their mutual interest. If sending Njinga secured a lasting peace, then it would save Mbandi's crown. And if she managed it, she would be back in a position of influence. A win-win. If she failed, well, he could just exile her right back from whence she came. To paraphrase Hamilton... And Jinga wasn't planning on throwing away her shot. When she arrived in Kibasa, she put together the largest ever Central African delegation that had ever met a European governor. She was granted a large household to look after her needs. And this was all in aid of making her look very important. She was essentially going to go to Luanda to shout, Look at me! Look how impressive I am! The party was welcomed into the Portuguese colonial capital of Luanda by their own military escort and joined a parade to the centre of the city with music and ceremonial gunfire ringing out for hours. Njinka herself entered the city on the shoulders of male slaves, but she made her biggest impression when she had her first meeting with the governor. These sorts of summits are always just a competition of power moves, and the Portuguese had perfected this over their colonial history. So Njinga would have to bring her A-game. First of all, she came not in European clothing, but in the full regalia of a Mabundu princess, glittering in gold, jewels and rich cloths. The idea here was not to appear as a supplicant in the dress of the overlords, but as a royal who demanded to be treated as such. Governor de Souza then countered with a classic colonial move. He sat himself down in a velvet chair, embroidered with gold, but no other chairs were brought into the room. This was meant to emphasise Njinga's subordinated status by making her and her entire entourage sit on the floor. The conqueror putting the conquered in their place. However, no one outpower moves Njinga. Not missing a beat, she signalled to one of her slaves, who dropped to all fours behind her, making himself into a human chair for Njinga to sit on. And, my God, this guy was an absolute hero. Not that he had any choice in the matter. Because he had to maintain that position for hours, as Njinga and D'Souza negotiated. Oh, and when they finished, she left him there. When D'Souza asked if she didn't want him to go back with her, she told him no, he could keep him for no one as important and impressive as her would deign to sit on the same chair twice. But this wasn't all just a display of protocol and one-upmanship. There was serious diplomacy to get on with as well. 
As I said, this was a long and difficult negotiation. But it is telling that the Portuguese were willing to treat with her. Europeans at that time were not known for their gender blindness. Portugal demanded a lasting tribute of men and slaves in exchange for peace. But Njinga refused to agree to the old deal Mabandi had struck. After all, tribute was inflicted on conquered enemies. And Ndongo, for all of its suffering, had never been conquered. She reportedly said, quote, He who is born free should maintain themselves in freedom and not submit to others. By paying tribute, her king would become a slave instead of free. Now, this wasn't exactly the deal that Portugal had in mind. And so the governor asked her if no tribute were to be imposed, what could she offer to convince them of her commitment to peace? This was when she unveiled her final trump card. She offered to convert to Christianity and to be baptised. She stayed in Luanda for several months so that she could be adequately prepared for the ceremony. The sight of an African noble being publicly baptised wasn't actually that unusual. It was an accepted way of ingratiating oneself to the Portuguese and also shows her own personal ambition. She wouldn't have done this if she hadn't one day planned on becoming queen. Indeed, before this, she had counselled her brother not to accept baptism for himself, thus positioning herself as a ruler-in-waiting that the Portuguese could do business with. And should something happen to her brother, well, maybe they would look kindly on that as well. In the ceremony itself, Governor de Souza was named as her godfather, and she took the baptismal name of Anna de Souza. This would suggest a real position of subordination for her. But, again, this was all for show. Throughout the rest of her life, she would never give up her traditional religion. Indeed, she would wear both of her faiths with pride, emphasising one or the other depending on the audience. Before leaving Luanda, she and the governor agreed, in principle, to a peace treaty between their two peoples. The details would take a year or so to be thrashed out, with the final clause being that Mabandi had to agree to be baptised as well. Now, he agreed to this, and the treaty was signed, but immediately Njinga started to put pressure on him to go back on his word. The costs would outweigh the benefits, she said. Would the people of Ndongo accept a Christian king? Now, of course, she thought they would. She wouldn't have done it herself if it had been any other way. But this duplicity poisoned the detente between her brother and Portugal and elevated her own position in the process. Perhaps seeing King Mabandi begin to renege on his side of the bargain, D'Souza reacted by kidnapping over a hundred Mabundi landowners, confiscated their lands and sold them into slavery. But he also refused to dismantle Ford and Baca, another treaty stipulation, convincing Mabandi that they could not be trusted. The stresses of the situation caused Mabandi to become ill with anxiety and depression. And in the spring of 1624, he drank some poison and died. Now, exactly who put the poison in his drink is a matter of some debate. But it is widely believed that he was killed on Njinga's orders. Everything that she had done since she had been invited back to Ndongo was about enhancing her position ingratiating herself with the Portuguese and denigrating her brother. Now, she had revenge for her murdered son and was in prime position to become the first female ruler 
in Ndongo's history. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns